This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to this very special Times Red Box debate on who will be the next Conservative leader, recorded live in Manchester. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by a stellar panel of Times uh, columnists, Matthew Paris, Hugo Rifkin and Rachel Sylvester, to answer what should be a very straightforward, simple question. Who will lead the Conservatives next? After what happened in the general election, uh, this year, the general election where Theresa May was going to sweep all before her, secure a majority not seen on earth uh, in history. And of course, that's not how it panned out. She then, everybody assumed, would have resigned the next day and didn't. And each day she's there, it seems like she gets a bit stronger. So who, who will be the next leader? And I think we'll probably end up coming on to when will that happen as well. And is there any possibility that Theresa May could end up leading the Conservatives into the next election? So, Matthew, let's start with you, with the straightforward question, who do you think will lead the Conservatives next? Well, I don't think anybody is going to have the guts to, to challenge at the moment. There are so many reasons why they don't want to do that. So it would only be in the collapse of the government and the collapse of cabinet discipline that this could happen, faced perhaps with a, a vote of no confidence. In those circumstances, you'd have what I think would feel like an emergency. And in an emergency, I think that the claims of Philip Hammond as a caretaker for a year or two until the party had sorted itself out might prove to be quite strong. Excellent. Philip Hammond's the first name. Hugo. Mm. I haven't got anything nearly so coherent to say. Um, I have <laughs> no idea because I don't know, I don't know who the Conservatives want to be uh, at the time of the next election. I don't know whose votes they're going I don't know if they're going to be going for my vote or if they're going to think if people like me vote for them, then they've failed. So I, I um, so, and so because I don't know what sort of party it is, it's very hard to say who might be leading it. I think it's almost impossible that Theresa May will lead them into the next election. Yeah. Um, but whether that happens because she does a full term and then falls away or some disaster befalls her in about four days. Um, um, I simply don't know. So I think, I think it could well be Boris Johnson. I would not rule that out at all. Or it could be somebody of whom we have never heard. And Rachel? I want to say who I think it should be, who I think is Ruth Davidson. She's far and away the most kind of appealing to a wide range of 
voters. Um, the problem is she's not in Westminster, but I'm in politics where there's a will, there is a way. And I think if she could be prevailed upon to stand in Westminster, win a seat, she'd have the sort of outreach. She's a liberal conservative, compassionate. She could maybe even appeal to people like Hugo, um, as well as more traditional Tories, kickboxing lesbian, grew up in a housing estate. You couldn't say she's an old Etonian toff who doesn't <laughs> understand the real world. Um, she just looks like she enjoys leading a party. She's led the Scottish Tories to great success. Theresa May, I'm afraid to say, looks like she hates absolutely every encounter with the electorate, with any journalist. She hides wherever she can. And Ruth Davidson looks like actually she really relishes the fight. So it's interesting, as, you, as the audience came in this evening, we asked you to write on post-it notes who you thought would lead the party next. And overwhelmingly, Ruth Davidson was the most popular choice. There's several Boris Johnsons on there. Uh, David Cameron is on there. <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't I'm on there, <laughs> which was definitely nothing to do with me. In, in fact, I spoke to a senior Tory last night who said he was convinced if David Cameron was still in the House of Commons, the Tory party would turn to him and say, please come back, all is forgiven. Um, and it's interesting whether they're actually now in such a state, they, they, don't, they, they want some stability. But that would be a terrible idea. Matt, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, when, you, when you interviewed her, Ruth, Davidson, Ruth yeah. Davidson at lunch today, and you asked her exactly that question, what were her ambitions. How do you interpret her answer, which was basically that she hasn't entered her mind? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was struck, actually, that she, she talked a lot about having been in number 10 to see both David Cameron and Theresa May as Prime Minister, and seeing what a lonely, difficult job it is. And I think she's had a huge success in... Scotland, a lot of it is essentially larking about trying to make, particularly in the early days when she was running leader of a small group in Scotland. Um, and she probably enjoys what she's doing. She, you know, the, the Hollywood setup is one she's familiar with. I think to go, going to be Prime Minister is a, is a big leap. But unfortunately, with, whenever a popular politician says, I'm not sure if it's for me and it's a step too far, that only makes them more appealing. The same thing used to happen with Alan Johnson. The more mm. he said, mm. I do, I, I'm Can't not up to the job of being Prime Minister, the more people said, well, that's, that's exactly the sort of person we want. It's the, it's the, the Gordon <laughs> Brown being dragged out by his fingernails type is, the, is, the, is what is a turn-off for voters. I mean, I think with Ruth Davidson, it's something people don't acknowledge enough about her, is it how, without wishing to be rude in any way, how little she knows about how it would be like to be Prime Minister. She is operating in a different world, surrounded by different people. She won't know the people coming in and out of Downing Street. She won't know the kind of the English party hierarchy. It is very different up there. You know, it's, I mean, as you'll tell from my strong, strong accent, I'm Scottish. Um, and, um, and it really is, it's a different, smaller world in which everything behaves very differently. And there are, there is this sort of vague understanding that there are these sort of distant Tories down in London who do different sort of things, and I'd imagine she'll be almost quite frightened of the concept. Although you know. I do think there's a kind of golden touch in politics, which is actually incredibly rare. There are very few people who have that charisma, whatever, however you identify it, and if you've got it, you, you know, it's, it's incredibly valuable. There aren't very many winners, actually, in she, politics, and she, she behaves like a winner. But she needs a team, she needs a right-hand man, she needs a Damien Green. Who's that Damien Green? You know, they're, they're, they're just, they're just Who's on. Damien Green? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the nation cried. Um, so let, on Ruth Davidson, I think there's also an interesting thing about 
the fact that she's not in the Commons means that people can project onto her all their hopes mm. and dreams of, it's true. and particularly mm. Remain Tories, because she was she was so good in the TV debates. Amber Rudd is also her name's on the on the wall a couple of times as well, because she comes from that centrist Cameroonian part of the party. People who are despairing at what's happening with Brexit and a lurch to the right want someone like that to come forward. It's also, I suppose, it's about, as Hugo says, what direction the Tory party want to go in. So I think when people are saying, talking about Ruth Davison, they're talking about her ideas and her, what she represents as much as her as an individual, perhaps. No, I think, I think she as an individual is a very important part of what, what people like about her. And it's very hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that's so refreshing about her. She gives the impression of, of being a straight-talking person who gives a straight answer to a straight question. She's actually extremely good at ducking <laughs> questions. As I discovered <laughs> yes. over yeah. the course of an hour, yeah. there were some questions which she absolutely went, yes. goes for, and others she took, yeah. took me on a long wander around lots yes. of other cul-de-sacs. Yes. If, if, Matthew, I mean, you know the party very well. What, what happens? What are, what, are, what are people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I was, who I was very relieved not to see on the wall, but who, what do people, like, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg... If he Rees-Mogg, was literally pinned to the, the yeah, wall. That'll, that'll, that'll be, be fine. That'll be fine. That'll be fine. Um, what do people like him do if, in, in a party led by Ruth Davidson? What does she do with people like him? I mean, cause that's not... Both these, both these futures cannot coexist. Well, you know? in our secret dreams, um, some of us in the Conservative Party <laughs> would like to see a leadership that, that actually was so repellent uh, to some on the left that, that we actually that they actually stalked off. Right. Um, I wouldn't mind. I, I'm really missing you, Kip. I mean, it was. It, away, but you want the left you to mean, stalk off or the right yeah, to stalk? No, the right. Oh, you want the, the right, right, right to stalk off? Yes. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm missing you, Kip. Uh, <laughs> UKIP was a place where people could go if they didn't like what the Conservative Party but stood for. But they didn't. For. They didn't go. That's the whole problem. Yeah, well, <laughs> they came back. That yeah. was the. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know, I was a member of parliament um, many decades ago, and it's very hard to explain uh, to an audience like this that is looking at the logic of, of, of politics, why, if you are a Conservative MP, the idea of actually teaming up with people in the Labour Party, even people who agree with you, and if you are a Labour MP, why teaming up with Tories is just so hard to get your head around. It, it could happen. I would like it to happen, but I, I don't think we should be uh, too naive about this. George Osborne is a, is mm. a, is a fascinating... I mean, in fact, this is one of the questions I asked Ruth Davidson uh, was, had she regretted not standing in the general election this year? Because then that would have put her in the House and it could have been different. I, I suspect George Osborne is regretting uh, his decision to stand down because he obviously thought that Theresa May was going to get this huge... Uh, majority and he was going to be on the in the wilderness for years was actually if he'd have still been in the House of Commons. Although he's having so much fun. He does appear to be enjoying himself. <laughs> and also he would have, in a way, he'd have been in the internal wilderness, wouldn't he, in the House of Commons. I think he'd have been really ostracised. Well, even now? It, he, yeah. Okay. Don't you think? Because he's so Remain supporting. I think, Hugo, you were talking about what does the Tory party want to be. I think there was a feeling amongst the Cameroons that if if Theresa May did win this big majority, it was going to put the lid on the modernisation yeah. that they'd been doing. And they were concerned because you know, they'd fought so hard for it and it was going to set them back. It was actually the outcome of the elections thrown all that up in the air. They're actually, how, how does the Tory party win? Does it have to go back to a Cameroonian well, centrist modern No, project? I mean, the, the, well, uh, I mean, they've killed that. That's the thing. They've, they've killed that and they replaced it with something else that they've killed. 
So, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't, I mean, it's why I think even if Osborne was still in the house, I don't think he could really, I mean, people hate him. You know, he's, he, I think he's doing a decent, a good job at the, at the Evening Standard, and he's, you know, he's having an interesting time. And, and I think it's, I sort of rather see him there than, well, certainly than, than as Prime Minister. But um, I just don't, I, don't th I think the, the, the sort of Conservative Party that could have been led by Osborne, um, the, the big achievement of the, of the Mayites pre-election was to completely bury that. That's gone. You know, liberal posh boys. But they buried um, it the because they were going to win. And actually... Yeah. Well, sure, but, but you'd need to... I mean, it's, it's almost why Ruth Davidson is, is a strong idea, because she's not that. She shares a lot of politics with that. But there is a freshness and a difference, and, a, and, a, and she didn't go to Eden. I mean, he didn't go to Eton, but still, you know. It's quite interesting. Boris Johnson, who is a liberal posh boy, is yeah. fran frantically reinventing himself as illiberal. Yes. And sort of, you know, Mr. Hard Brexit. Mm. Um, and, it, and, you know, going back years, that wasn't the case about him. He was very liberal in immigration. He was, you know, flip-flopped on Brexit, as we know. He was George Osborne. They were, they were, the, they were the same. They, they were the same politics for a long time. Now, Matthew and Rachel, you've both used your columns in The Times to, well, basically tear J Boris Johnson to shreds. Uh, I'm sure I have just, well. I think we all... <laughs> well, if not, if not, you, you must. I can't remember, remember offhand, but I must have done, yeah. Matthew, just, uh, just remind us of, of, what of you, some of your key... What? Issues. With his, with his sister in the audience. <laughs> I'm certainly... No. She'll probably clap along. Um, yeah. uh, I you, think he's unsuitable. Uh, both as a, a politician and as a human being, uh, to be uh, uh, to be uh, to be the leader of the Conservative what Party. Would you she wasn't in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should say that he was my editor in the Spectator. He's never done me any harm at all. He was an extremely good editor of the Spectator, and he's enormous fun. Um, but that, that's. That's where he and I part company after that. <laughs> and Rachel, you wrote about him more recently, uh, particularly in his role as Foreign Secretary and his failings in that, that job. Well, my worry was really that coming Foreign Secretary was a chance for him to grow up and become a statesman and really prove that he could do a grown-up serious job. And he hasn't managed to do that, I'm afraid yeah, yeah, yeah. to say. And it's, you know, he's gone around the world insulting people, left, right and centre, making enemies, and that that actually ends up damaging country whatever it does for his own ambitions it's that it's been bad for Britain's reputation abroad what is the matter with him <laughs> I'll genuinely because we uh, I've, t I've done quite a lot of this talking about Boris on you know, the media and writing about the last week or so I don't, I don't know if he's got a plan or if it's just is it just attention seeking for the sake of attention he's not he's not a stupid person and yet there doesn't seem to be any he doesn't seem to have thought this is a big job I can grow into in uh, obtain the gravitas that I was lacking previously. He just seems to be sort of a whirling dervish of, it, it, as long as he's in the papers, that's it's, something. The thing is, it's working. I mean, he was, yes, he had, he had the big job to, to be Foreign Secretary, which was a big job he could make a splash in. Turns out he couldn't, because he's responsible for everything except for Brexit, which is all the, all the foreign <laughs> news. And so he had to go off to, go off to God knows where, and do something that no one was really interested in, and nobody noticed. And then he started... But there's so much foreign news, Myanmar, North Korea... Well, sure, but, he, but he, started, he started making a fuss in his characteristic, irresponsible fashion, what, ten days ago. He's now right back in the news. He's, he's top of all the polls as the most likely person to lead the party again. And it works perfectly. And yet, you know what, at the Tory party conference this week, 
I haven't found a single person who thinks that what he's been doing is smart or sensible. Mm. And every cabinet minister I've spoken to thinks that Theresa May should have sacked him. And actually, speaking to people in number 10, the reason they haven't is because they think he's doing that job himself and he's ever diminishing returns on these interventions. I, I think, Matt, the, the, the psychopathology of people who go into politics, and I don't exclude myself from this analysis, uh, it, it really does take Freudian psychoanalysis to understand. So when you ask, what does he want? What is he trying to do? It's a very complicated mixture. There's a huge desire for attention. I'm quite conscious of it myself, and I'm not sure I'd have gone into politics without loving audiences and, 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 and loving to be noticed. The huge desire uh, for attention. There are also wild dreams of, uh, of predominance, of being Prime Minister. I shared them. I thought I was going to be <laughs> Prime Minister when I was 29. Somebody should put, uh, put your name yes, on the wall. Oh, yes, they should have, but it's, um, it's too late. Uh, th th there are also ideas. Um, there are ideals. There are some things you think it would be good to do and that you might be able to do. And it's all a kind of horrible, dreamlike mixture of, of wanting applause, wanting attention, having ideas, having ambitions, all swirling together. It's just, I think, that in Boris's case, it's, it, 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 it's, it's gone, it approaches the role, uh, the, the realms of the grotesque, but it's actually present in most people who go into politics. It is what makes Philip Hammond such an unusual politician. He doesn't actually seem to like politics at all. He doesn't seem to like people particularly. He doesn't seem to care whether anybody applauds him or doesn't <laughs> applaud him. And, uh, but haven't it, you seen it, the photos of him as a goth? <laughs> yes. He definitely had his showman's Or you eye. could say all of those things about Theresa May as well. She's, yes. she's a very unlikely politician. Yes, yes you, you could. But Actually, th I think the best politicians do have to have that deep need yeah. for endorsement yes. and love. Because you're, yeah. yeah, you're putting yourself, often, at, at, we, I do interviews every week, and often they've lost a parent or they've had some terrible tragedy in youth. Mm. And it's the need for endorsement is so profound that you're willing to put yourself, make yourself vulnerable for, before the electorate every four or five years. And it's, it's, it's a compulsive form of behaviour almost. Mm. It's almost like an addiction. I'm wanting to be mocked, laughed at, uh, uh, sneered at, um, libelled, slandered, anything, so long as people are talking about you. Did you find that when you were the sketch writer for The Times that, that people actually quite liked you being horrible about Oh, them? yes. It was the ones <laughs> we didn't write about that used to complain. <laughs> to us. No, they, they just loved it. They just loved it. I've, I've, I'll never forget a, an MP whom he's no longer alive, but I rather admire him because I wrote a, a, a sketch describing his face as looking like one of those pizzas where you can order extra and, and someone had just gone over the top and ordered everything. The, <laughs> you know, the, the olives, the bits of cheese, the pineapple, everything. That was his complexion. And um, <laughs> there are most Conservative MPs, most MPs would simply be delighted to have been the centre of, a, of a, a, a little portrait like this in a sketch <laughs> in the Times. But this man wasn't. He came up to me the next day and said, Paris, I'm never going to speak to you again. And I thought, good for you, because he's not doing himself any good by telling a sketch writer he'll never speak to him again. But he was hurt, he was angry, and he expressed it. They are sometimes hurt, but they don't express it, and they are just pleased to be talked about. You haven't mentioned their good work in the surgery, though. Isn't that an important part of that, John? 
It varies very much from MP to MP. It is quite nice to be Lady Bountiful in your constituency, to be a prince in your own patch, to have people coming in like petitioners asking for help with their housing or whatever. And quite often, using your MP's headed notepaper, you can help them. And it gives you a huge thrill, both to help them and also to be in the local newspaper as a fairy godmother-like like figure. It, it's important because it teaches MPs where the problems are, where, where things are pinching, where the, where the state has got it wrong. It's, it's terribly important. It's a great strength of our system. But as a motivating source uh, um, for, for, for politicians, I, I think there is a little bit of a danger that you begin to think it's acting as a glorified social worker where your great uh, usefulness lies, rather than down in London, which a proper member of parliament should understand is their first duty. Well, I'm going to embarrass Matthew by saying that I read his book, Chance Witness, over the summer. And there was a brilliant section in it about being a local MP, which I took a photo of. It said, only gradually do you realise that none of this is making much difference to anything. Only slowly does it sink in that though the world will doff its cap to you, and though you will always be on the top table at any local feast, and though the local newspaper will print your thoughts on any subject, and even the letters editor of the Times will be inclined to let you jump the queue, and though your name will now be in who's who until you die, nobody is actually taking any notice. <laughs> Which I thought was a, a sort of grim, but probably quite yes. accurate account of what it's like. Because there are 650 of them, and we've so far talked about five. Yes, yes. And there were an awful lot of them who are doing, filling their time, yep. convincing themselves they're doing good local work. Yes. yes. And it doesn't, none of it really makes a, a great deal of difference. <laughs> Let's move to, on to another one of the names that, uh, that a few people have written on the wall. Uh, Amber Rudd has all the same politics, essentially, as Ruth Davidson. She is in the Commons. She's the Home Secretary. Uh, she hasn't been on manoeuvres, as far as we can tell, in a, any sort of serious way over the summer. <coughs> She's got a small majority, but there were lots of people who would like to see her at least in the race for leader. Is that she's, she's definitely the name you hear among Liberal Tories who are plotting. <laughs> she's their candidate, for sure. Um, I just She doesn't look like she enjoys it. I don't know what um, no. you guys think, but she doesn't seem to relish it. You've um, talked to her more than we have. Um, is she more than a PR? <laughs> I, th I think... I think, actually, speak, having spoken to her and her special advisers, she wears the responsibility of being Home Secretary very heavily. Mm -hmm. And it's a really hard since job. she's been yeah. in the job, she's had five terror attacks, mm. which are in the news for us. I mean, you know, even in Manchester, but they're in the news for us for a few days or a few weeks. But actually, it takes over her life. Presumably, she also knows about all the ones that. And all the ones that. Yeah. And I think. Uh, she was genuinely furious about Boris's article dropping on the day of the mm. Parsons Green attack. Mm. Uh, and when she said, I was a bit busy dealing with a terror attack, she really meant, you know, while he's larking about uh, writing pieces of the Telegraph, I was, I was dealing with what looked like a, another mm. terror attack. I mean, she is a bit too obviously the heir to Theresa May. You know, I do, I do think, I do, um, <coughs> I think a sort of sane, in a sane, sensible Conservative Party, she'd almost be a shoo-in as the next leader, but I don't think there is one. So, um, so that, that doesn't really quite apply. <laughs> but um, I'm also aware, I mean, the, the public, we don't know her very well. And it's very, she's one of these people it's very easy to project on. And I think her similarity to Theresa May is such that it's not impossible she could turn out to be, I mean, not, not even the sort of the George Osborne to David Cameron, maybe more the kind of like the Ian Duncan Smith to William Hague. You know the same the same thing, but a bit less so. That happens afterwards. 
you know. Um, she's rather more modern than Theresa May. Isn't could she? could be. Mm. I mean, I, I I don't know. I think she's more political as well. Mm. She has more political uh, nous. An awful, an awful lot of her metaphors are about being in a car with Boris Johnson. Have you noticed that? There's <laughs> loads of them. Backseat driver, don't drive home with him. What happened? <laughs> yeah. um, now, there were also some other names on the board which were uh, sort of outside the cabinet. James Cleverley was one. Who he is a very good question. Anybody, anybody want to explain who James Cleverley is? No, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> there is an interesting thing about whether or not you need to, the Tories need to have a whole new generation. So other names like Tom Tugendatta I mentioned, Rory Stewart I saw on the list. Um, somebody who's not kind of known and not associated with the Tory past. So, and, and a new generation, fresh blood, fresh ideas. Mm. Um, and I think it depends when the change of leader happens. Yeah, yeah. So if it happens in the next year or two, I think it'll be one of the established mm. people. Mm. Um, David Davis would be a very strong candidate, probably if it's very soon, given his Brexit knowledge and all of that. But if it's in... Is what? The <laughs> <laughs> sweeping assumption. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if it's three or, th you know, two or three years down the track, it may even be too soon but for these that, that's new generations. That's what felt like what was behind Boris's most recent activity, but also Boris and David Davis over the summers. They know their best chance is sooner this rather than later. This time around, yeah. Because if it, if it does go beyond Brexit, and people have talked about it needing to be a sort of firewall change so that it goes into the next election with a sort of completely new team then in a <laughs> moment's past. James Cleverley is a he was an MP elected in 2015. Mm. I think he's most well known for saying he wanted to snog Theresa May during a TV interview. I mean literally MPs will do anything to get to the, <laughs> to climb the greasy ladder. It hasn't worked yet. He's uh, he's uh, not not a minister. Another uh, name on there was James Cartledge who I confess I know even less about. Who, who, who is he wrote here? James Cartledge? Did James Cartledge put up James Cartledge? Somebody wrote James Cartledge. Come on, own up. Are you, are you James Cartledge? <laughs> <laughs> I, I once did that. I was once hosting a, a quiz in Parliament for lobby journalists. Uh, one of the answers was a name of a Labour MP called Greg McClymont. And I read it out and everyone went, what, who? And I said, no, I've never heard of him either. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally never heard of him. And he was there, and he stood up and he said, oh, I'm going, and no, nobody there had ever seen him before either. <laughs> He's not an MP anymore. So go on then, J who are you? Are um, you James Cartley? No, 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 no. Um, I'm Ian Stevens, and James is my MP. Okay. Um, and I think he's a very good constituent MP, and also he's not a kind of old Etonian type, and he, he from what I've seen in the constituency, he can reach out to many different levels of, you know, the social ladder. So I think that's quite good. And is he, do you think he wants to be Prime Minister? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> who suggested James Cleverley? Probably if you've written it down, you can't hide behind. Uh, oh, who said Graham Brady? So Graham Brady is the chairman of the 1922 committee. Very powerful, actually, in the Conservative Party. He's actually been egging... Theresa May on to sack Boris Johnson and said, if you want to sack people in the cabinet, we're right behind you. But one senior you Tory described him to me last night as Theresa May's jailer, because he's the one keeping her locked in number 10. Wow. <laughs> Do I see need to say any more? <laughs> <laughs> is he your MP? He yeah. is, and he buys me a drink every year. Yeah. <laughs> 
He looks like Prince Andrew, doesn't he? <laughs> now, th th that's a little bit unfair, isn't it? Who, 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 the, who said that? The speaker said it, didn't he? Did he? Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, which uh, I think may have it's upset kind of a, a few. kind of thing you said about that other MP. Yeah. <laughs> And mm -hmm. Tom Tugendhat's come up a couple of times. Now, his name keeps coming up, and I was speaking to somebody, mm. what should I say, somebody in number 10, uh, about the various people going on manoeuvres. And I said to them, you know, obviously, Tom Tugendhat, I said, oh, I know he wants to be Prime Minister. I said, well, why, why though? He said, because he keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> somebody quite senior in number 10. So who said Tom Tugendhat? Former, former army officer. Former army, which, there was a, which um, James Cleverly was a former army officer. Uh, there's a few of them. Johnny Mercer's another one. So why Tom Tugendhat? Um, I just think he's got credentials, former army officer. I think he's quite credible. I haven't seen him do much for the Foreign Affairs Select Committee yet, but he's got a great platform to raise a bit of profile for himself. So why not? Fresh face. You, you do sort of think currently with Theresa May, I mean, I mean, anyone could have a go. Uh, <laughs> well, I was, I was talking with a couple of other journalists on Twitter last night, and we were trying to figure out who in the Conservative Party the Jeremy Corbyn chant, the, oh, Jeremy Corbyn chant, which names that could work with. You've only really got Andrea Leadsom. It's the only one. <clears throat> the, only, the, only other, the only other thing it really works with is, oh, somebody different. That's perfect. But, but you, you, that number of syllables, it's got to be Leadsom. Take us back to the Milton Keynes Costa Coffee, <laughs> where you decided with, the outcome with of the British politics. the disabled alarm going off and the goodness, yeah. Um, what happened, and did you realise then when she was speaking, that you were... Killing her. Yeah, destroying her <laughs> bid for, the, for number 10. No, obviously not. It was... Uh, I just asked her what difference there was between her and Theresa May, and she immediately came out with... She had something about the economy, and then she immediately launched into how she had a family, and it was... Um, that was incredibly important. And if you remember, she said that gave her a stake in society. Um, and then she said something like, you know, unlike... I know poor Teresa can't have children, which is very sad, but, you know, it, it, motherhood gave her a stake in society. My colleague Sam Coates wrote up the story where we put it on the front page and everything, completely accurately reported. That evening she launched this Twitter tirade against me as a kind of gutter journalist, and this was absolutely appalling misrepresentation, etc. But subsequently, I've spoken to people in the Leave campaign, which she was very actively involved in. Do you remember during the... She was one of their yeah. debate people. And during the debate preparations, they had this American debate coach who came over and advised them called Brett, something or other. And he of spent... Of course he was. Yeah. <laughs> he spent the whole time saying to her, you must just say, as a mother, I'm supporting Brexit because X, Y, Z, as a mother. And I think it got stuck in her mind that this would be a way to appeal to the kind of Tory traditional family values. So although she said this was a terrible misrepresentation, I actually, in retrospect, think it was part of a deliberate strategy, um, which makes it even more odd to then launch the tirade. Well, she launched it, she demanded that, we, that the Times release the transcript and the audio. Which we which did. Which we then did. And, and it, it turned completely out that all you've done was, was written yeah. down what she said and put it in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd be amazed how many politicians take that very badly uh, when you just report what they've said. It is a huge leap and it is an incredibly difficult job. And almost in until you do it, if, if you've been untested, you can't know if you're going to be able to do it. Um, but both of the two you've just mentioned had experience of being leader of the opposition, yeah. Yeah. at least for, for a while. And I noticed Jacob Rees-Mogg, for instance, says he doesn't think you could go straight from being a backbencher 
uh, to being leader of the party or prime minister, which is his way of saying, please make me chancellor of the exchequer <laughs> in the <laughs> reshuffle. I mean, I, I don't, um, I think even in politics, good, good people get ahead. So I think there's a marked difference between someone who's been in opposition and is plunged into that situation to somebody who's been in a party of government for a long time and is plunged into that situation. I think, you know, I mean, there are many capable, very capable MPs, but, but I mean, politics generally is not overblessed with massive talent. And um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I mean that, yeah, yeah. That, that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds like a, like a, like a mean gag, but I mean it literally. Um, and so I think if you manage to be in parliament for five years without anybody thinking that they're going to make you a, a minister, let alone a cabinet minister, there's probably a good reason for that. Although I think at the moment there's definitely a generational problem. A lot of the younger MPs are incredibly frustrated that they're, if you like, these older bed blocker ministers yeah. who Theresa May yeah. can't fire. Right. And they, so there's a whole generation of people who haven't got a, there are no spaces for them to become junior ministers. Um, well, the Tom Tugendats and well, James Cleverleys of this world. Isn't there also um, a, sl a slight almost cultural problem there, in that a lot of the young intake, they're basically, they're basically Cameroons. They're Cameron exactly. Osborne, Os mm. Osbornites, and yet they've, they're, they're in this Theresa May run party. I mean, I, I remember meeting a few uh, at the time of the last election, these people who'd been brought into the party by David Cameron and wanted to be David Cameron, and were now going door to door trying to sell Theresa May, and they were like, mm. you know, the, yeah. this is the sort of, the, the party that had turned against this. this, is precisely why they joined it in the first place. Yeah. Mm. So you can't, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that an MP who's not been made a minister now well, under Theresa long, May is, is yeah, yeah. useless. Yeah. Should we read into the fact that the, the vast majority of names on the wall, with the exception of Ruth Davidson, and most of the names we talked about are men? Are men, male politicians, more likely to push themselves forward? Certainly all of the shenanigans since the general election have been sort of men uh, posturing and beating their chest. Is, is, there, is, is there something, and actually you know, it's Ruth yeah. Davidson who says it's a lonely job and I'm not sure it's for me. It's Amber Word who says my majority in Hastings is too small. Is Definitely, there something in that? There is something about ambitious men politicking. They're more likely to do that than, I don't think, I don't think women are as plotty, generally. I, I, I perhaps put it less tactfully than, than, <laughs> than Rachel. I, I, th I think that men are much more likely to entertain hopeless fantasies <laughs> than, than, than women. In life or in politics? Yeah, okay. <laughs> both. 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 Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting counterfactual. If after the election, Andrea Leadsom hadn't then put herself forwards, whether people would now be saying, for God's sake, they've got to give it to Andrea Leadsom. You know, no, they wouldn't. Really? No? no? no. Okay. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. Um, and so let's... Well, I'll be able to question in a second, but uh, I'd also, I've had, I've had quite a busy day of doing these uh, uh, fringes. I did another fringe this afternoon on uh, what the Tories can do to attract young people. Because there's been this big debate, and it's, it's a, it seems to be a big part of this conference. And the room was absolutely packed in a way that 12 months ago, the idea of the Tories having to attract young people would have just, well, we just don't need to, and, you know, <laughs> enjoy the buffet. Um, <laughs> But it is now a big thing because Jeremy Corbyn seems to, seems to have electrified younger voters and brought in first-time voters, people who haven't voted before. Does the, does the Conservative Party need to do something boldly different rather than just go for Philip Hammond because he looks like a grown-up or, you know, because that's what conventional politics says and we're not in conventional politics anymore. So does it need to be a young person or somebody that doesn't fit the mould? I think it does, actually. And I think the... 
rather pathetic announcement that Theresa May made on giving graduates £360 a year, whatever it was, which was supposed to be matching somehow Labour's pledge to totally abolish all tuition fees ever, <laughs> would just ridiculous under you know it raised it the salience of the, yeah because yeah. it pointed to a problem without a solution <laughs> similarly on the help to buy policy which was you know basically would increase the demand for housing without increasing the supply it doesn't help young people at all and i think actually it's much more of a sort of cultural problem with young people that it feels like the tories aren't in touch with the modern world doesn't feel like it's on their side and that was the great um, sort of triumph, if you like, of the Cameron project is that he started to make it look like it was in in touch with the kind of modern world and things like gay marriage were very important towards that. But the pr big problem, I think, for the Tories is going to be Brexit. The majority of younger voters are incredibly anti-Brexit, but now the Tories are going to be forever the party that delivered Brexit, bad, you know, for better or for worse. And, and that's a value, I think it's this values difference that is so profound, rather than any indi individual policy. Yeah, I mean, look, I'd, I'd say two, two quite different things. But the first is, I, I chaired a meeting this morning uh, for Bright Blue about uh, environmentalism in the Conservative Party. And something that struck me hearing all the speakers was that the Tories actually have a pretty good record mm -hmm. on the environment. They've done a lot of stuff. Theresa May, the only time she's really spoken against Donald Trump was over Paris, you know, yet they're almost, they're afraid of talking about it because that's not the people they look at. And, Cameron, and that is very much the people Cameron looked at. And he would talk about that kind of stuff that young voters do care about. The second thing was the major epiphany I had about the Labour Party at the moment, at the Labour Party conference last year, <clears throat> when I went to the, the Momentum Party, which was hilarious. Uh, it was like there was a sort of grunge band on, and then they stopped at 11 p.m. and Jeremy Corbyn came on and spoke for like an hour and a half about the miners' strike, and it was <laughs> it was mental. Uh, but, um, but the people who are at the heart of momentum, the young ones anyway, they are the same people a few years later who were the backbone of David Cameron's Conservatives. They are the they are the Cameronites. They are the they're the they're the young Oxbridge idealistic. I mean, some, sometimes literally, James James Schneider who helped set up Momentum, was a, was a young conservative, Cameronier young conservative. You know, they are the same people. And, and Labour is speaking to them in a way that the Tories are not even trying to. What the Tories can do to speak to them, I'm not quite sure. I, saw, I mean, I've written about this in tomorrow's paper, perhaps slightly impenetrably, I fear. Uh, but um, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I think it's not quite enough to just say, we'll help you buy houses, particularly when you're not even really helping them buy houses. Um, I think there is a, I think there's been a major shift in young people's understanding of how the world works generally, the potential for ownership, the potential for career progression, all that kind of stuff that the Conservatives right now have nothing to say about. And so I think they need a whole new language to be able to talk about that kind of stuff, not just some token, token policies, I think. Matthew? I think it's a sign of uh, the, the age of, of the panel, even of Hugo, that we, we use this expression, <laughs> young people, as though there, were, there was this group young people who kind of know each other and they're all part of the same community. There are 18 and 19 year olds, some of them still studying A-levels. There are undergraduates. There are young men and women who haven't gone to university and aren't going to go to university. There are 20-somethings. There are 28-year-olds, um, perhaps about to get married, perhaps already married. They're all completely different people. And I, I don't think they thank us for addressing them as though they were all just young people and as though there were a message that would, would please young people. Uh, to the extent, I, I 
go around talking in schools, sometimes in universities, to the extent there is an idea of a young person. I think that young person has ideas of their own. Um, they have beliefs of, of their own. They don't always agree with each other. They often disagree violently with each other, but they do appreciate a, a, an intelligent attempt to engage with some of the ideas that, that interest them. Okay, let's uh, open it up now for questions. Who's got a question they'd like to ask? The Liberals in the last election uh, wanted to legalise drugs. Do you think Labour or Conservative will go, th go that route? It didn't seem to do the Lib Dems a lot of good <laughs> at the last election. I think they should, I don't think they will. No, I mean, I think, um, well, it depend I mean, the, even the Lib Dems only wanted to legalise cannabis, in fairness. That's just a politics we don't really, really have yet. I think it's a, it's a, it's a subject that it, it might have been party political in the past, and Tories would think, as Tories, what we have to do is just be against it, and Liberal Democrats would think we have to be in favour of it. I think increasingly you've got a debate actually right across party lines about what we're going to do uh, about drugs and what's the, what's the best way. And, and actually you've got quite strong arguments advanced within all parties, both for and against uh, uh, legalisation or softening the law on legalisation. So I don't see it as a, an electoral issue any longer. Um, Conservative MPs pick the final two people to go forward to the runoff. Who is popular amongst Conservative MPs? Is Jacob Rees-Mogg popular amongst his colleagues? I don't think he's taken all that seriously as a potential leader. I think that uh, Boris Johnson's problem is that he's not particularly popular amongst Conservative MPs. And I think one of the reasons why, although I, I wish that we could break this vacuum at the top of the Conservative Party, it's not likely to happen, is I, I can't actually think of anybody in the House of Commons who has a, a really big, good, solid following as a potential leader of the party. Plenty of people have a few friends, but, but that, I, I, I don't see the momentum. I think one of the things that you saw that George Osborne's basically spent 10 years building up his base and using his patronage and money, basically giving people roundabouts and bridges and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, and the, the people are, uh, there's been such a turnout, you know, we've had two elections in the space of two years, so the, the new intake coming in, and the new intake of the past two elections are especially sceptical of Boris, because they've never been in his orbit. Uh, even the ones who were in Parliament when he was mayor were sort of aware of his power and uh, abilities to win people over, but I think there's this real scepticism about him, and I think that's why, one of the reasons why Theresa May's happy to keep him where he is, is because it, it doesn't feel like he's carrying a a big slice of the party with him. Yeah, I think Jacob Rees-Mogg's a really interesting character because I, I think Matthew's absolutely right. He's quite liked by his colleagues, but he's not kind of respected as a potential leader. So I was actually at university with him, and he's always been one of the most polite, nicest people you could ever hope to meet, but seen as also a bit of a joke. So I remember mm -hmm. that our first week, he stood up in the Oxford Union to make a speech in his three-piece pinstripe suit. He hasn't changed a bit. I mean, he is genuinely like that, has been since the age of seven or whatever. And, and he stood up and said, unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. And everyone laughed. And then after that, everyone adored him. But they would never have thought, oh, this man should be prime minister. And I think there's probably something a little bit like that uh, in the House of Commons that he's... But then now it's sort of he's morphed into this kind of serious candidate and with all this stuff bolted onto him as this kind of representative of a true believer Brexit and it's kind of 
kind of Frankenstein's monster gone a bit wrong? It's it's deranged. Is what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's um, I mean, he, he's been he's been the big star of conference. You know, he's been selling out every everything he's done. I mean, I can't get into any of his fringe meetings. Why? Why, why would you want to? I mean, it's um, <laughs> and it's uh, it shows the the high quality of, of of time subscribers that he's not up there on the wall. I will say, but uh, uh, Robert Harris, uh, I would never put it like this. It's sexist and unacceptable in so many ways, but... But you're about Ro to. Ro but Rob <laughs> no, I, I quote Mark Robert Harris, who, who said... <laughs> yes, you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it, Matthew. Robert, Don't Harris, do it. Robert Harris said that he was the bar a barmaid's idea of a gentleman. And uh, they're, they're, it, it's, a, it's a cruel remark, but he, uh, the Rees-Mogs are not... A, 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 an ancient noble family. The Rees-Mogs are just rich people in Somerset who've made quite a lot of money. They hyphenate their name, Rees-Mogg. Really grand people do not hyphenate <laughs> their names. And all the public school boys I knew at university were the ones that didn't want to wear boaters and didn't want to wear gowns in hall and didn't want to criticise the Latin pronunciation of whoever was uh, reading the grace in Hall, uh, that, that was the grammar school boys, the set I was part of. It was us who loved all that kind of thing. So please put from your minds the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg is a true representative of the, of, the, of the upper crust of the United Kingdom. He absolutely isn't. I wondered whether Ruth Davidson's appeal is because she's been in the opposition in Scotland yes. fighting the SNP and how that would reflect on, on her, how she does? Yeah, I can't add to that. That's a, a very interesting reflection and I, I, I think it, you, you may be right that she hasn't spent her time trying to explain to everybody how difficult government is. She's spent her time trying to explain to people what a mess the SNP are making of things and that, that gives her a freshness and an optimism. People have touched on Brexit but nobody's talked about the financial crash. I mean since the financial crash um, people no longer respect e experts people don't want to understand economics. How do we re-explain the importance of economics and, and, and you know, why the world works? And, and we talk about getting a youngster in charge, great idea, but if they don't have a real understanding of, of um, the way the economy works and sells capitalism again, the Tories won't get in. It strikes me that part of the problem with the conference this week has been this sort of idea, well, we just need to give you another lecture about how yes. economics works. Yeah. And you just need to see that you don't understand, and then you'll all come back to us because you'll realise that Jeremy Corbyn is, is a disaster. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, um, in the end, politics always comes back down to do people feel richer or poorer? And I think one of the big problems is people haven't seen their wages going up. People have felt cross because they don't feel richer, as it were. I haven't explained it very well, but the, I think the Brexit vote was at least as much about that as about immigration, actually. The immigration's a proxy for feeling cross and poorer. The whole anti-expert thing is a proxy for feeling cross and poorer. And it's, it's all kind of muddled up. But I think you're absolutely right. There's no point. I think the Tories also have to acknowledge that there are some companies who've gone, you know, sort of, are taking the mickey, if you like, and they're not paying their taxes. And the Tories have to understand how the public feel about that. But I think another lecture on why the free market's the best model isn't mm. isn't going to solve anything, is it? Well, I'd, I'd add nationalisation to that list. There's a, 
It's no good telling people on trains which are constantly cancelled or you're being ripped off by your water company or your energy company to say, oh, yeah, but it was terrible in the 70s. That's not going to pay the bill, is it? It's pretty terrible now, actually. I mean, there's a strong sense of impending, if not beginning, disaster in the country. I think whether that's reasonable or not, there is that strong sense. And I think what the Tories have managed to do is they've managed to squander their sort of historic advantage of being the party that, that you want to have to head off a disaster. Because they're the main policy for which they are identified at the moment is perceived by many people, if not a majority of people, as disastrous. And so given a choice between Tory disaster and the disaster that's going to give you lots of free stuff, the Corbyn disaster, people are going, well, we'll go with the free stuff if it's going to be a disaster anyway. And, um, and so I, I think that, I mean, the, the, the idea of economic competence, of course, is very, very important for, for a government. One of the Tories' big problems is they've sort of lost that. I did note, unlike Rachel, that neither Hugo nor Matthew said who they thought should lead the Conservative Party into the next election, so I'm interested in that. But what I'm really interested in is, do you think the Conservative Party is prepared to be radical enough to win the next election? Because they're going to lose it if they're not. I think that's a really interesting question, because I think that's the big divide, if you like, in the Cabinet, isn't it, between the sort of revolutionaries, the, which is Boris and Gove and a lot of the Brexiteers, and the, the kind of reactionaries who are the steady as it goes, keep everything calm. Um, and I think Theresa May is, is so incredibly cautious. She's never going to come up with... I think Nick Timothy, her chief of staff, was a kind of radical and did have ideas, but she's... She's just squashed all of that. She's got, she's a, somebody said to me, she's an empty vessel. She doesn't really know what she thinks. Well, as Hugo says, we, we do have a radical Conservative government at the moment. If, if Brexit is not a radical, uh, not, not to say revolutionary political idea, what, what is it? Uh, it, it, but it, it, a lot of them don't really agree with it. That's no, the no, problem. No, no, so I, no, they don't. <laughs> including yes. the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, the Home Secretary, in their hearts of hearts, yes. they but voted that, against it. But that's why I, I agree with Matthew agreeing with me. It's like a <laughs> ball, ball, balls to radical. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's have somebody who's not... I mean, that's why you asked... You know, I mean, Ruth da with Ruth Davidson or Amber Rudd, I would be as likely to vote Conservative as I've ever been. Take, take, take from that what you will. Uh, but... Um, Precisely because they're not radical. And I think there is a sort of unacknowledged constituency in the country of people going, can we just stop all this mad shit, please? Mm, yes. Uh, and I think maybe they could represent that. When it came to Brexit, I could have voted either way. I really could. And, and at the end, I voted out because I thought we would get, we had a better chance of getting reform rather than staying. And you, you say this is all madness, but you heard what Jean-Claude Juncker said last week about his visions for Europe. Is that your vision? Would you have been happy to Good stay? God, no. I, I think the no. debate's yeah. over. You've got to get out and realise at the next election you're not going to win or lose it on Brexit or even on the Brexit deal. It's about all the other things that need to be fixed, like housing, like social care, like opportunities for young people. We're missing the point by focusing on Brexit. I'm quite sure that the next election will be won for the Conservatives or lost on Brexit. It will be won or lost on whether they seem to be making the success that they have said that they can make of, of, of Brexit. I happen to think that it's, it's well on impossible to make a success of Brexit. But if they can make a success of, of Brexit, they're absolutely home and dry. And if they, they can't, they, they don't deserve to be re-elected. Um, you asked who I, who I would like to be leader of the party, it would be Rory Stewart, and I keep trying to persuade him to run, but so far w without any success. But he, j just like 
Hugo, I, I would be looking for someone centrist, uh, moderate, uh, competent, with decent liberal instincts, but someone who believed in the free market and in competition, and, um, and, and that's enough for me. I don't need any big revolutionary new ideas for Britain casting itself out into the world and doing wonderful deals with tiger e economies. It's just all nonsense to me. Nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think Juncker's vision of, of Europe, they spelt out the other week. No, of course I didn't agree with that at all. But I think it's, he's talking about the kind of things that he can only talk about now that we're out of the picture. Um, and, um, and I think he'll be, he'll be opposed by the leaders of yeah. many, if not most, other European nations. Of course he wants that. He's from Luxembourg. What else is going on? <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I think... Um, and I, I, I mean, I, it, it's part of the part of my sort of horror of the, uh, the mess we're in. I don't, I don't think you can turn around and just not Brexit now. Uh, I think you have to do some tortuous soft Brexit kind of thing and then rebuild from the mess. I mean, it's it's a broken thing. You can't put it back together again. I completely appreciate that, but that that doesn't mean I have to be pleased about the situation. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for. We've got quite a lot of ground, which is uh, which is very. I'm not sure we've got any closer to answering the question, uh, which is much like last week. We did a similar thing in Brighton when we asked, "Will Jeremy Corbyn be prime minister?" And we talked about it for an hour and a half, and we still didn't know uh, because we've basically given up making predictions. Um, uh, thank you so much, uh, all of you, for coming. I hope. You found it interesting, not too depressing, uh, um, but I hope you, you've taken away some uh, interesting thoughts about it. My thanks to the panel, Matthew Paris, Hugo Rifkin and Rachel Sylvester. You can sign up to my morning uh, email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box, and it's free. Uh, make sure you take home your mugs and show your friends because they'll be really jealous. Uh, and you can uh, download the podcast on iTunes and all the, all the usual places. But once again, on behalf of the Times and Red Box, thank you very much for coming. 5 years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Thank you, man.
Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.